From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, a moment of silence before this episode begins. So, uh, I don't know if you saw this on Instagram this week. Um, I was scrolling through my feed, and I saw that uh, Raleigh, our beloved city, um, has uh, won the title of most hot dogs eaten per capita of any city in America. It's true. We knocked Buffalo out. They were reigning champs for two years, but we have upped our hot dog game and proves that if we put our minds together... We can really accomplish anything. And, um, and when I saw that, that uh, Raleigh Magazine had sort of promoted that we had just won this new title, I, I sent like a, a text to Maggie, uh, who runs our social media, and I was like, this feels like it's worth a reshare. Like, uh, and then uh, right about the time I finished saying that, I uh, continued to scroll through my feed, and the very next photo I saw uh, was somebody reaching their hand into rubble, uh, holding hands with another uh, dear soul that was being crushed by an earthquake. And I, and I, um, I was like, maybe we just hold on the hot dog. Um, it's sort of how I feel this morning. I'm like, go birds, fly eagles, fly. Isaiah's with us, right? Yeah. And at the same time, Somebody uh, informed me this morning that the, the death toll that when I came in this morning, I thought was 10 or 15,000 people has now climbed to 33,000 people have died in this earthquake. And um, in trying to make our way through this life together in like a faithful way is really challenging. Like just in our own feed, emotionally knowing how to regulate and how to make sense out of all this. And... And I'm just being honest saying I'm struggling with you in that. And even this morning, I'm kind of wrestling with that. But it feels like the sort of thing we're called to wrestle with. And it would be a tragedy for us to gather as the people of God who believe deeply that the folks whose lives were lost in that earthquake are our siblings. And uh, that we're a, they're a part of our family. And to just for a moment try and begin to wrap our mind around that tragedy. Um, 33,000 is the number I just saw when I Googled it, which, by the way, is the current population of Fuquay Verena. So just try and imagine every living soul in Fuquay in a matter of moments gone, and the ripples of all those people who love them. And um, it will be generations upon generations um, before uh, families and people have made peace in some small way with this. And so this morning as we come to this holy text that was forged in the middle of crises just like this and has withstood the test of time for some 3,000 years, uh, I invite you to just join me in a few moments of silence, praying and lifting uh, the people of Turkey and Syria up in whatever way you know how. 
Um, and then we will continue moving forward this morning together. Um, so let's, let's do that now. Oh God, you divided the waters of chaos at creation. And in Christ, you stilled storms. You raised the dead. You vanquished demonic powers. And so God, we pray that you would tame the earthquake and all the forces that defy control or shock us by their fury. God, would you keep us, especially your people, from calling disasters like this your justice. And instead, God, help us in good times and in seasons of distress to trust your mercy and to yield to your power, both this day and forever. Amen. Uh, this morning... Um, we're going to be wrestling with uh, one of the most beloved scriptures, uh, especially for our Jewish siblings. But I'll just give you a warning up front. Um, not everybody's going to walk out of here feeling thrilled about the direction of where we're headed. Um, one of, uh, if, if you want to know, and you probably don't, uh, what's underneath my own approach to sermons. More often than not, there's a number of ways in, but one of the ways I typically start my process is I read the text, and then I just look for whatever really offends me. Um, and I figure that's enough to wrestle with for a week. Uh, and often you join me in that, and I take you on that journey, and I go, this sounds obnoxious or broken or dumb in so many ways, and often by the end of that journey, we're like, it was, but we were just reading it wrong. Uh, sometimes we come to a text, and we're offended by it, and we find out that the offense is actually in us, and that's kind of my theory uh, about the text we're going to look at this morning, Church on Morgan, and the tone of which uh, that may not be your favorite, uh, but a text that has shaped the people of God for centuries. In fact, Deuteronomy is probably um, the book of the Bible that you as a Gentile or a non-Jewish person, that you probably know the least um, that you should know the most. Uh, it was one of the most beloved books and continues to be of our Jewish siblings. Uh, it's, the, it's kind of the greatest hits of all the laws and the commandments. And as it's kind of mostly the grand final speech of Moses, the great leader of Israel, to uh, God's people as they're about to make their way into the promised land. And throughout it is just a, a riches, abundance of insight and wisdom. So much so that when Jesus is tempted, which a text that we'll encounter on Ash Wednesday, he quotes Deuteronomy uh, back to the tempter. When, when Jesus is asked What's the greatest commandment of them all? And he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Deuteronomy. Throughout Deuteronomy, uh, we're told again and again, parents are instructed to keep this book and its teachings in front of their children. And it appears that Mary and Joseph did just that. That this was the book that was in the background playing, being rehearsed at the dinner table again and again, and it formed the life of Christ whom we love and celebrate. And so 
often were disconnected from the very text that, that shaped him. And so this morning, we're going to look at the final kind of punchline of a 26-chapter-long valedictorian-type speech. Uh, Moses, uh, due to some poor decisions that he has made, is not going to be able to join his people in this promised land that they've longed for and wandered in the desert for 40 years. And so before he dies and lets them move on and generation begins to transition, he says, I want to tell you what this life is about. And he rehearses their history and all that they've learned. And then he gives them this final sort of strong call. And that's where we're going to look. It's uh, Deuteronomy uh, 30, and we'll be looking at verses 15 to 20. Uh, so I invite you now to hear this word of the Lord. And this is what Moses said to his people in conclusion. Look here. Today, I've set before you life and what's good versus death and what's wrong. If you obey the Lord, your God's commandments that I'm commanding you right now, by loving the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments, his regulations, and his case laws, then you will live and thrive. And the Lord, your God, will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and so are misled, worshiping other gods and serving them. I'm telling you right now that you will definitely die. You will not prolong your life on the fertile land that you are crossing the Jordan River to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth as my witnesses against you right now. I have set life and death, blessing and curse before you. Now choose life so that you and your descendants will live by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by clinging to him. That's how you will survive and live long on the fertile land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, so if... Um, if you know me at all, you know that I am uh, apologetically in on um, television in this great day and age. Uh, I am not embarrassed about it. I don't want to have talks about my screen time. We are living in the golden age of some of the most profound storytelling on screen the world has ever known, and you're not going to dissuade me. Um, there is so much amazing content out there right now, and, uh, and so... This week, as I began reading this text, I was immediately reminded of two shows that have recently captivated me. Uh, the first is Shrinking. Is anybody watching Shrinking yet on Apple TV? We got, okay, Colton, here we are. We got a few. These are our early adopters. Um, they are in. You'll find out about it soon enough. So here's the basic premise of Shrinking, and I didn't write it. I don't know the whole thing. We're getting one episode a week. It's like old school. It's hard, but we're, we're dealing with it every Friday. We get another drip. Um, but uh, it's a show that centers around a group of friends who are all therapists, and they work together in the same office. Jason Siegel, who from How I Met Your Mother is the main character. Harrison Ford is kind of an older therapist that works in the same office. Uh, and, and there's like at least two layers of what's going on. One is that uh, Jason Siegel, this main character therapist, uh, you find out that his wife has died in the last year. And in his deep grief... Um, he's gotten stuck. 
and he can't quite figure out how to like move forward or move on. And sadly, he's begun to accumulate a, a bunch of kind of maladaptive behaviors. And so he's, he's drinking too much. Um, he's kind of sleeping around. He's, he's not investing in the relationships that matter most. And so he's got all of these therapist friends around him who work in an office with him. And they're all watching him kind of like throw his life away. But they're doing kind of the therapist thing, like the very gentle self-discovery. Like, I wonder if there, maybe you could get outside and see a friend again, you know? I wonder how it would feel to, you know, like the very polite, open, we're going to let him come to this on his own time moment, right? And so in the middle of his own personal kind of like frustration and um, upheaval in his life, he's still seeing clients himself. But I think there's some deep relationship between his own innate sense that he is stuck And whatever has shaped him and formed him and all the people in his life seem to be useless to him, and he refuses to be useless to the people he's serving any longer. And so he decides to change his whole approach. He he like snaps one day, right in the middle of this session with this woman who's uh, complaining to him about her partner who's clearly an awful human being and does not love or cherish her or serve her in any of the right ways. And you get the sense that he's listening to this woman talk about her partner for, uh, you know, 50 sessions. And so he just interrupts her and is like, listen, he's horrible. He doesn't love you. He's not for you. And you're going to break up with him today or I'm never seeing you again. Right? And then the next client comes in and he does the same thing. Here's why you're a mess, okay? This, this, and this, go take care of it now or I'm out, right? And you can imagine, like, if you're kind of a therapist, you're like, that's raising some red flags. Like, I'm like, yeah, and the whole show kind of unfolds that way and you see where this is some limits, right? But, but that's kind of the premise of this one show. The, another show that... Uh, this text reminded me of, is Stutz. Have any of you guys watched this documentary on Netflix? Man, y'all, come on. All right, so (laughs) Stutz is this really interesting documentary. Jonah Hill, uh, it's kind of his passion project. And essentially, Jonah was in a really tough spot personally a number of years ago and felt like he was losing control of his life and the rest. And so after trying everything, some of his friends refer him to this therapist that apparently has helped tons of celebrities out of their own ditch but his ways are really unconventional. And this doctor, Dr. Phil Stutz, uh, has profoundly changed Jonah's life. Jonah feels like he saved his life and he saved the lives of many of his friends. Uh, But Phil Stutz has got this uh, disease and he's beginning to lose some of his function and before the inevitable happens, which is that he'll either no longer be able to practice and then eventually die, Jonah feels like the world needs to know about this great man and about his unconventional ways of serving. And so he goes to Netflix and says, I want to shoot a documentary about my therapist. And uh, loosely what's happening is he invites the camera in for his own therapy sessions. And right away you get the, the vibe of this guy and why he's so different than any other therapist. So Jonah will be like pontificating about some sort of situation in his life. And he's like in the middle of the paragraph and this doctor will just interrupt him and go, you're an absolute idiot. All right. And everything you're saying is so foolish. And you can't even see how backwards you are in this moment, but I promise you all your friends and family do. And so here's what you're going to do. One, you're going to stop talking. Two, you're going to start listening to me. Three, get out a note. I'm going to give you some homework that you're going to go home and do, right? It's like the same strange dynamic that's happening in this show, Shrinking. And as I've been like, 
fascinated both by the way that these shows have hit me, and while well, not you, Church on Morgan, many other people. Um, <laughs> it's had me wondering, like, what is this about? Here's, here's kind of just a, a real light gloss on it. We love watching other people be called out and told what to do. Like, we relish it. Like, I fantasize about the possibility of just going to the people in my life and going, you know what? On behalf of our friends, um, here's why you're an absolute train wreck, and we all know it, and all you need to do is this, right? Like, we have these fantasies. If somebody would just tell this person why their life's such a mess, maybe we could kind of move on. And then watching someone do that for somebody else, to somebody else, we're like, there's, oh man, I gotta wait a whole nother week? Like, this is fantastic. We love watching other people be commanded what to do. What we hate is someone doing it to us, right? There's nothing we bristle at more than someone telling us, this is what you need to do. I don't like it when my kids tell me what I need to do. I don't like it when my wife tells me what I need to do. In fact, my wife and I have been married 20 years. We spent all 20 of them as type A firstborns telling the other what to do and promptly rejecting it, you know? Um, <laughs> This is how it works. We do not like being told what to do. Church on Morgan, you do not want to be told what to do by your pastor. And if I'm being honest, most of us don't even, aren't even all that interested in being told what to do by God. We're not interested in sort of commands, which is where I've been wrestling with this text this week. That Moses pulls like a full Dr. Phil Stutz. He shows up in the room after 80, 100 years, walking with these people, watching their patterns of behavior, and says, I've had it. I've literally only got minutes left, and so I'm going to give it to you straight. Your whole life, everything I've just recounted for you, before you, has been life and death, and I'm sick of you making up your own mind. I'm telling you today, choose life. Listen to me. Love God. Listen for God's voice in your life. Do what God's telling you to do. Stop trying to figure it out on your own. I, I hear Moses speak in that tone, and I'm like, I don't, I don't like that approach. I don't think my people will like that approach. We're not big on commands. We've got questions about rules. We're not even sure if your commands apply to us. We're not sure how best to understand them. We're, we're, where do you get off coming so strong? We're not even a, we're not, we're kind of ambivalent even about how we engage this text and Moses and this whole community in and of itself. I mean, one of the most common conversations that we have here at Church on Morning that I've often been a part of is just sort of saying like, I don't, I don't know where I am on all this stuff. I don't even know if I want to raise my kids in the church. I've got real questions about that, concerns about that. I mean, the way that we often think about God's law commandments, obedience, um, corporate worship is, is sort of like, well, you know, some of us are into pickleball and some of us like church and some of us, you know, like prefer board games. Like, it's just like, I don't know, let's just stay open about it. Moses kind of watching his people's life and, and he comes straight for them. This is the last thing you ever hear me say, I'm going to tell you what to do. And so, because you don't have time to read the whole book of Deuteronomy, I just I want to give you a sense of what led to this moment in his speech and how he frames it. And he does it better than I'm going to be able to do for you right now. But this is essentially what Moses says. 
Uh, I've made some decisions. They weren't great. I'm not going to be able to go with you. Uh, My life will end on this side of the river. You're about to enter a promised land. Don't forget your history. Let me remind you of your history and of who God has been to you. First, you were no people. You had no identity. You had no purpose. You had no uh, deep sense of belonging, and God gave us that. God gave us a mission and a purpose. God said, I'm going to, of these people, I'm going to bless them in such a way that the whole world will see what I'm like, that through you, the whole world will be blessed. You, you were given a purpose. You were chosen. You were named. You were formed. You were given each other in a moment when you didn't have any of that. And then through some horrible circumstances, you found yourselves oppressed enslaved to this brutal leader. And God heard your cry and he freed you from that oppression in profound and miraculous ways, set you free when you were slaves in Egypt. And then for 40 years, as God continued to love and serve you as you wandered in the desert, never once did the clothes on your back wear out or the shoes on your feet. You were fed and sustained all that time by a God who deeply loves you. And now you're about to enter a land that he promised you that no one ever thought you'd receive. This is who God has been to you. So love this God. Obey this God's voice. And there have been seasons, Israel, Moses speaking to his people, there have been seasons when we've done this. Can I remind you what that was like? When when we were loving God and following his commandments and living in his way, we, we had this beautiful connection with one another. God shaped us into a whole different sort of people. We, you could even say we were being made holy. We, we were offering a vision of a way of being that the world desperately needed that nobody else could provide. That those on the outside who weren't yet a part of us, when they looked at our life together, they respected us. And in many ways, they were awed by the way that we did life and how different it was from the way that they did. And even though we had hard times in those seasons when we were listening to God and following God's law, our life was still filled with good things. At every turn, God was reminding us of God's faithfulness. We were growing in generosity. Our, our, Our legacy was one to be proud of. Our kids raised up and called us blessed for the ways in which we introduce them to God. He says, but there was also a season. There have been many seasons where some of us, we got sick of all the rules and all the commandments and all the listening for God's voice and doing what God wants. And we didn't really like that direction. And we had another idea. And so we said to ourselves, I think I'd prefer to live as I please. And that was like a weed that grew up amidst our community And it began to take over. And can I remind you of what those days were like? And Moses begins to paint a picture for his people. He says it was some of the most confusing, disorienting days of our life. We couldn't figure out which way was up and which way was down. We had the sense that we were never going anywhere. We'd get up in the morning and we'd say, how much longer till evening? We just wanted to stay in bed. And then he gives a couple anecdotes, but here's just a couple. He says, when we lived according to our own ways, when we thought, you know what, I'll just do what seems right to me. I'm on a bit of a journey. I kind of am interested in self-discovery. I don't want anybody else to tell me what to do. And I got a sense that our people who came before us don't know. And so 
I understand that that person's already married to somebody, but we have this deep, real connection that, that you wouldn't understand. And so you left your partner and you married someone else's. Only for two years later, someone else to marry that new partner of yours. This is what your life looked like. You, you, you hoarded your resources and your wealth and you built yourself a McMansion only to default on the loan and never move into it. He, he goes through these lists of situations of like, this was your life. This was our life. I was there. I was with you. It's been a long 40, 60, 80 years together. There have been times where we remembered what God had done for us and we lived in uh, awe and reverence and submission to that and it was beautiful. And there have been seasons where we said, I think I'd like to do it my own way and it has only led to destruction. And so Moses says to them, I'm telling you today, for the last time that you hear me, I have set before you life and death. Choose life. Do what I'm telling you. Choose life. These casual ways that you're handling your resources and wealth and power and relationships. These are not casual things. This is life and death. Choose life. I, um, when, I, when I read that, I, I thought, I probably had a number of the objections that you're raising right now in, in your mind. Um, Sure, but I experienced a decent dose of death on the other side of the church or the people who claim to be Christians or folks in authority like yourself who said, this is what's right and this is what's wrong and get in line. And I am not going to argue with you there. In fact, that's who Church on Morgan has been. In many ways, it's why the sermon will sound the way it sounds today. I had to explain to somebody after the first service of like, one of the difficult things about preaching is that I'm preaching to a very particular context. If I was standing in a different room with a different sort of people, uh, this sermon might sound completely differently. But I know who you are, Church on Morgan. And, and, and we're the deconstructionists. We're the people who've seen authority gone wrong. We're the people who aren't interested in commands and rules. We're the people who got three more questions about that. And I'd like to see, and did you know, this commentator says, and I hear you, right? And so I'm talking to you and not somebody else on the podcast right now. Um, and as I thought about our life together and the way that we talk about our faith and our scriptures and our tradition and our church, if you were just hanging around for a little while, you might get the sense that like the church is the most abusive, dysfunctional, unhealthy organization that anyone would ever submit themselves to. And the only people who do are total fools. I think sometimes that's the way it sounds on the other side of us. In a spirit of us trying to be incredibly hospitable and welcoming to all the pain I've been on the other side of and you've been on the other side of when it comes to the church, sometimes I'm afraid we might miss part of the treasure that's here. And here's something really challenging I bumped into this past week. Um, Harvard has this Center for Human Flourishing that studies what, what leads to human flourishing? What, what are the kinds of factors that help people have a really beautiful, significant, meaningful life? And what are the things that tend to pull people away from that, right? What's threatening our flourishing and what's working towards it? And so when I saw Harvard Human Flourishing Study, the impact of uh, religious organizations on adolescence, I was like, oh God, here we go. Buckle up. And what was surprising was this. These are some of the findings. They said that 
kids who grew up in a religious environment, kids who were raised in the church, who attend weekly, which the study was done a few years ago. Nobody attends weekly, but like, okay. So when they attended weekly, as adults, these were the outcomes. They were 12% less likely to suffer from depression. They were 20% more likely to report high levels of happiness. They were 30% less likely to start having sex at a young age, 40% less likely to have an STD, 33% less likely to use illicit drugs, 38% more likely to volunteer in their community, 47% more likely to have a sense of purpose. That when Harvard looks at like, what leads to true human flourishing and they watch kids and adolescents who grew up in the church, when they become adults, this is the impact that they're seeing. It's, it's challenging. It's easy for us to look at the thing that we're a part of and to name everything that's broken with it. But I want us to hear for a second this morning, maybe Moses isn't wrong that all the stuff that we look at and we think is so restrictive might actually be profoundly prescriptive for a life of flourishing. And we know this. We've just forgotten it when we shed off all that fundamentalism and evangelicalism that some of us grew up with. That, that the law, that God's commandments for us were always intended to be a grace, a gift. That when we lived in the way of Jesus, that it led to the life that is truly life. That as much as we don't love commands and rules and we're, we're grace people, like the, the rules were a grace, are a grace intended to shape us for the kind of life that we desperately want. And that's really important. There's another side to this when we think about what Moses is so worked up about and saying, Quit trying to start over from scratch and come up with your own rules of living. It's already been prescribed. And when we live in God's way, we flourish in the way God would have for us. And most of us, when we hear that, it sounds like what I just preached, which is say God loves you, God wants you to flourish, and that's why God gave us this. I totally think that's true. I also think Nadia Boltz-Weber is right, and she's kind of my favorite cranky theologian to listen to in moments like this. And she said, that's, that's true, I won't argue with you there, but I also wonder if part of the reason we've been given these commandments isn't so much because God loves you, but because God loves your neighbor and wants to protect them from you. And God loves you insofar as you're a neighbor to someone else and wants to protect you from them. That this isn't just about even our own flourishing, but it's about our corporate flourishing. Like, we didn't have time to go through all the rules and commandments, but let me give you a taste of some of the commandments that Moses was reminding his people of. Things like this, uh, cancel the debt of the poor. Don't, don't strangle a people out for a lifetime on a debt they can't pay back. Limit the punishment you inflict on those who've had an offense in an effort to maintain human dignity. You don't throw people away forever. Offer hospitality to those who are running away or fleeing. Pay your employees a fair wage. Leave 10% of your crop unpicked so that those who are hungry will have something to eat. This law these commands, this way of living. It's not just about our own flourishing. It's, it's about the flourishing of all creation. It's about the flourishing of our neighbors too. 
And so this morning, I guess all I, I really want to say to us, Church on Morgan, as uncomfortable as it is to sit on this tone of this sort of text, is that if in, in my effort to be hospitable and, um, and in uh, solidarity with those of you who have seen the worst side of the church, if it's ever been, this has ever been unclear, I want to make it clear now that, that you're being here this morning, it matters. That us wrestling with these texts together, learning them, memorizing them, passing them on to our children, that it matters. That us gathering and praying together for the things that weigh us down and the tragedies that we see around the world, that it matters. That this, this isn't casual, figure it out on your own. And if I could be so bold with what little authority may be left in this life for people like myself or my position, I'd like to tell you what to do. Keep showing up to worship. Keep reading the scriptures. Keep getting back in the car with your junior high student and then taking them to events they're not sure they want to go to, only to sit in your car for an hour by yourself, to then pick them up and take them back home. It matters. This matters. These aren't small, casual decisions we're making. It's life and death. And not just for you, but for your neighbors, for our whole community. And so may we have ears to hear this day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.